Thank you all for coming. Thank you for joining us on the video camera, the live stream as well. We're glad that you're joining us. Today we're going to be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. If you have your Bibles, turn there, open them up. If I haven't met you yet and you're here with us for the first time, I'm Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as we've been going through uh, 1 Peter, um, what, what, what our, uh, our pattern is, the way we start our messages off, by reading this text out loud together, and then we pray and dive into the sermon here. So verses will be on the screen. Please join me as we read 1 Peter 13 through 21 out loud together. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you so grateful, so thankful for our status as adopted children, sons and daughters of God. Thank you for um, uh, just every spiritual blessing that flows to us because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, Lord Jesus. We're forgiven. We're redeemed. We're cleansed. We're, we're, we're your chosen people. So thank you, Lord Jesus for your posture and your devotion and your faithfulness to us this morning. I pray that you would get your glory today, Lord Jesus. That, Spirit, you would come and magnify Jesus to us. Uh, that you would have your way with your word and your people this morning, Lord Jesus. And we just want to leave worshiping you. We want to leave in, in wonder and awe of the redemptive work that you've done on our behalf, Lord Jesus. So please come, Holy Spirit, and have your way. Would I decrease up here? Would I be forgotten? And would you be magnified? Would you increase in our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our, and our lives, Lord Jesus? And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right, well, hey, uh, there's a major shift in our text today. If you've been with us for the past uh, three weeks or so, we've looked at the first 12 verses so far of 1 Peter chapter 1. And in those first 12 verses, Peter is expounding on the beauty and wonder of who God is and all he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And if we were to summarize the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, that would be kind of known as the indicative of the Christian life, meaning uh, identity. This is my identity. This is who I am because of all that God is and all that he's done for me in Christ Jesus. I'm redeemed. I'm saved. I'm delivered. I've been shown undeserved and unmerited 
grace. Peter has been saying so far to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he's saying, listen, church, do not forget, this is all that you are and all that is now yours because of all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus. This is who you are. This is everything you possess because of Jesus' heart for you, because of the Father's love shown for you in Christ Jesus. And then verse 13, where the beginning of our text today starts with a major shift, a transition with the word therefore, right? Uh, if, if you've heard pastors preach before and they're ever preaching a text that has therefore, they always say, and I'll say it again, even though it's cliche, when you see the word therefore, you have to stop and ask, What's that therefore, therefore? Right, thank you, Transit Church. You've heard me say that before, or Jeff say that. Um, so here's the deal. That marks a transition where we shift from the indicative now to the imperative, the identity to the conduct of the Christian life. So for 12 verses, Peter is saying, this is all that you are. This is the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Therefore is a bridge to the imperative, the command of the Christian life. How then, in our text today, we see a lot of commands that Peter gives the early church. And he answers the question, how then should I live in light of who I am and what God has done for me in Christ Jesus? So that's what we mean when we talk about the imperative. And so our conduct as believers in Christ always, always flows from our identity, our union with Jesus and the redemptive work of the cross. So we got a lot of ground to, uh, to cover here, a lot of commands, a lot of imperatives to cover. I'm super excited about preaching this text. But what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through it verse by verse. So starting in verse 13, I'll read that again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first command Peter gives out of the gate, shifting from the indicative to the imperative, is he says, now set your hope fully, set your hope completely, set your hope entirely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying to the persecuted, suffering Church, he's saying, bank all of your hope, not in this age, but in the age to come. Do not push all your chips in on the table of this life. There's, a, there's, a, there's glory awaiting. There's a new life that we as believers are to be living fundamentally for, and we need to set our gaze fully on that hope. And here's the truth of the matter, is that the only way, or one of the major ways that we're able to, as believers in Jesus Christ, is to triumph over or endure and press through persecution and suffering, the way we're able to do that, push through present suffering, is the hope of future glory. That's what Peter is saying here. Uh, a while back, about five years ago, Jen and I took a trip to Breckenridge, Colorado. Anyone been to Colorado, to Breck? Breck? Yes. Okay, I don't know why you're here and haven't moved out there because it is, it is beautiful. So we spent six days there and hiked every mountain that we could, we could hike. And before we left, our, our friends were like, hey, you know, drink a lot of water, kind of get in shape. The altitude sickness is no joke. And I kind of looked at them and was like, I'm not climbing Everest. Like, I think we'll be okay. Well, here's the deal. If you go hike there, the altitude sickness is no joke. Like, make sure you drink a lot of water. So the, we, Jen and I land, and the very next day, man, we're, we're hiking, and uh, we have a couple friends out there who've shown us like their top 10 hikes, and we're going to go do all those. And uh, if you haven't been there, you'll hike like 8, 9, 10 miles up this beautiful mountain, and there'll be this beautiful glacier lake up there, and this beautiful, I mean, it's just, it is mind-blowing just how beautiful it is. Anyways, the first day Jen and I are hiking, and I'm, I'm, I'm recovering from a broken big toe, and 
Uh, none of us have any like cool hiking gear. I'm wearing Nike Freeze, which is basically a sock tied to a sole when you're hiking. It's not good, especially when you have a broken toe. Anyway, so we're huffing and puffing up this mountain, sweating, like not even halfway there. And here's what was so weird is everyone who came down from the summit would, would come down and they would see us and they would say the same thing. Like all the people that passed us always said the same thing. They would look into our present suffering, the sweat, the agony, the, 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 the despair, and they would look into the present suffering and say, it's worth it. We've been to the top. We've seen the glory that is to come. We see your present suffering, but the future glory that awaits is worth any suffering that you have to press through in order to get there. Therefore, set your hope fully on the glory that is to come to make it, to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I think that's what Peter is saying here when he's saying persecuted church, the scattered church, the exiles, the sojourners, the aliens, uh, people living on, on hostile territory, right, on hostile soil. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your hope uh, set firmly on the glory that is to come because that's how you're going to endure and press through because all of this is going somewhere. This is all going somewhere. And that's kind of the conundrum, right, of the Christian life is that the hope of glory awaits, the hope of, of, of being welcomed into Jesus' arms, fully glorified, no more sin, no more suffering, no more death, no more disease. That hope awaits us, but yet, you know this as well as I do, we're not there yet. We're not home yet, right? And that's why Peter tells us how, tells the church how to set our hope fully on the grace that has come. And he, he says two things. He says, by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That preparing your minds for action in the Greek, what that literally means, what Peter is literally saying here, is gird the loins of your mind. None of us have any idea what that means in the 21st century, right? Gird the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Well, in, in, that, in that context, in the first century and, and before that, uh, the attire of the day, they didn't have like denim Levi's or, you know, Under Armour athletic shorts. So they were, they were with, uh, tunics that flowed down to their feet. And that command, gird your loins, would come right before a battle, right before uh, a, an activity that involved you not being, you know, trip, tripped up in your, your tunic. So what you would do when you heard that, heard that command, gird your loins, is you would take your tunic and wrap it up and tuck it in your belt. And if you see kind of like renditions of this, uh, it looks kind of like a, a man diaper, if you will. And so everyone would charge into battle wearing girding your loins like that. And so here's the deal. When, when Peter says, when Peter says, gird the loins of your mind, he's saying for 12 verses, he says, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. Uh, uh, you know, he just talks about the beautiful inheritance of grace that we're going to fully receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, and now how should, how should we respond? Prepare your minds for battle. Welcome to war. You're now an alien. You're now, you're now on hostile territory because you're, you're not a citizen of this world anymore. You're a citizen. Your citizenship is in heaven, and you're not home yet. So, so prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for battle. That's what he's, he's saying. He's saying don't anticipate, now that you're a believer in Jesus, ease of living. This isn't a cruise ship, right? You should anticipate hardship is what he's saying. Like the way of the cross. That's what I love about Philippians 3. The apostle Paul, his prayer in Philippians 3, his heart's desire was, was yes, to share in the resurrection power of Jesus, but also that he would share in the sufferings of Christ, right? 1 Peter 4.12, a little bit later on in our text, Peter says this to the church. He says, beloved, he's talking about your identity. You're the beloved now of God in Christ Jesus. He loves you. And then he says this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. I don't know what a fiery trial is, but it sounds pretty intense. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, watch this, as though something strange were happening to you. 
Because often what we do when we come to know Jesus, right, and follow him, is when we face persecution and suffering and hardship, we go, this wasn't part of the deal. I'm the beloved, which means that health and wealth and prosperity follow me all the days of my life, right? Like, isn't that part of the deal? And that's not what Peter is saying here is, hey, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, and whoever wants to save his life will lose it for my sake. Jesus meant that. When Jesus said in Matthew 10, hey, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus meant what he said. Right? And that's what Peter is saying is, hey, this is, this, is, this is lock in step with following Jesus. Yes, we had the victory of the resurrection. We had the power of the Spirit with us. And yes, we're in hostile territory. And we need to gird the loins of our mind and manage our expectations about what the Christian life entails. That now, as, as God has redeemed us, he's also enlisted us into a battle, pushing back the kingdom of darkness and advancing the kingdom of light. And then Peter says, stay sober-minded or being sober-minded. And what Peter is talking about there is sobriety of mind, right? That's what he's talking about, essentially, is he's saying, he's saying, listen, in order to set your gaze fully on the hope that is to come, uh, rid yourself of anything that would take your gaze off of uh, the most important thing in your life and living for the Lord and, and uh, the Lord's return, right? And so uh, uh, the, the opposite of sobriety of mind would be intoxication, Allowing things in our, in our minds that distract us, that cloud our judgment, that, that, that weaken our resistance to temptation, that things that let our guard down. Like if, if gird the loins of your mind be, being, uh, means being prepared for battle, then being sober-minded means, hey, you're in a battle, so don't let your guard down. Be alert, be awake. And in 1 Peter 5, he says, he gives this command again, Peter does, when he's talking about spiritual warfare. He says, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. And so that's what it means. He talks about our identity. We're the beloved, right? Future glory awaits. We have that as our inheritance. Now, church, church, don't count it something strange when we're facing persecution, when we're walking through suffering. This is what it means to follow in the footsteps of our, of our persecuted and crucified Savior, right? And he's with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And surely goodness and mercy will follow us, yes, all the days of our life because his presence is with us. And yet at the same time, man, we're still here. We're exiles, right? And this is what uh, leads Peter to keep talking uh, about that. We've got to move on. Verse 14, I'm getting long-winded here. Verse 14, he says this, moving on. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so the, the second command we see that Peter gives, he says, don't be conformed to the illicit passions uh, and desires of your pre-Jesus days. And so what we learn is the second we come to know Jesus, our old self, our old desires, our old passions, they don't go down without a fight. That's part of the battle as a Christian, is mortification, is putting the old man to death, the, the old ways of living, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of acting, all those illicit desires, right, that, that the old man, uh, it never goes down without a fight. That's, uh, you know, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 is this idea we see throughout Scripture, we're commanded to, in a way, put off the old self and put on the new self. Put off the old man, the old way of thinking, renewing our mind, and put on the new self. Put off the, the old self, mortification, put on the new self, vivification, right? And uh, what Peter says here, again, is he points the church to their identity. He says, as obedient children, as obedient children, he says, your identity now is you guys are God's kids. You're God's kids. You're sons and daughters of the living God. You have been adopted. And Peter's reminding them that. He's saying, you've been given a new father. 
A new family, a new home, a new wardrobe, a new inheritance, a new status. You're currently living with a father in a house where the fridge is always full. So whenever you're hungry, there's no need to leave the house and return to your former residence. There's no need to leave the love and the grace of your father. There's no need to to leave and go back to your former residence and your former master to to satisfy illicit hungers and thirsts and desires and passions. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. He's given us all that we need in him. Every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so when the the old man comes and, and, and tempts us and wages war, against the newness that is ours in Christ Jesus, we can say, hey, that's not my address anymore. That's not my wardrobe anymore. That's not my father anymore. I want to be an obedient child and please my father. I'm not going to return to my former way of living because that's not my identity. You see what we see, what we see here? Is that how our identity always is, is the source of our conduct, saying, I got a new home, devil. I got a new home. Uh, uh, old self is waging war. I don't live there anymore. That's not the world I live in. I've been set free from that, right? John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus looks at her and says, does anyone condemn you? She says, no, my Lord. He goes, neither do I. I don't condemn you. But go now and receive that new life and leave your life of sin, is what Jesus says. And we have that beautiful, that beautiful inheritance, that beautiful adoption, that we have the righteous robe of Jesus that covers us. There's no reason for us to go back and put on the rags that the devil used to dress us in before we came to know Jesus, right? We don't need to do that. We have so much in Christ Jesus. There's no need to leave when those passions come and and with hunger and thirst of old ways of living tempt us to leave our fathers. No, 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 none of that, none of that. And so that's what one of the things that Peter reminds us of is one of the things that we need to prepare prepare our mind for battle uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus is that, hey, the old self is still uh, uh, doing push-ups in the corner when you think he's, you know, He's still, he's, still, he's still doing CrossFit exercises and just waiting for your time of temptation to come in and tempt you, right? Like the, the battle, temptation never declares a truth. So be sober-minded. Prepare your minds for action. The Christian life is a battle. And we see the battle against our former passions. Verses 15 through 16, continuing. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The next command Peter gives here is he says, as, as the Lord who has called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And that, the, the, that command there is a common command throughout the Old Testament. And Peter here is saying that command applies to the new covenant age as well, to the church today. That's what he's saying. And that command was where God called out the nation of Israel to be his chosen, consecrated people who were to be set apart and distinct morally, ethically, spiritually from the pagan world. As God was holy, they were to be holy as well. And uh, this is a mega theme throughout Scripture. We see that um, one of the reasons we have been called by a holy God is to share in his holiness and reflect his holy nature. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. What's the that? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should, we should be holy and blameless before him. So what we see in God's sovereignty, in God's sovereign grace, sovereign choice of us, his grace to us, it's part of that grace that he shows us is us getting to share in and reflect his holy nature, right? 
And that's what his holy nature is, his perfect righteousness, his absolute moral perfection and and purity, and that makes him set apart and distinct from sinful humanity. But a quick disclaimer here that I I wanna talk about because I think it's important whenever we talk about the pursuit of personal holiness is that I think we have a tendency in the church at large that whenever we talk about holiness, we, we divorce holiness and the pursuit of personal holiness from a relationship with God, from, from the context of a covenant with God, that we're in a covenantal uh, relationship with God the Father, right? And we separate that. And the result of this is when we try to just say, hey, I, I got to be holy because God is holy. And we, we separate it from context of, of love and devotion to God. Holiness then becomes synonymous with external legalism, right? Where I just need to stop doing all of these bad things because that's what it means to be holy. I just have to stop doing this. got to stop doing this. I got to stop doing this. And it's just miserable external legalism when we're trying to to just, you know, I don't know, just to, just to be holy. And it's a selfish approach to living, right? It's, it's like another way of, of just self-help in a way if we divorce it from a pursuit of God and devotion to him. So I recently read through a book uh, called Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson. And I'm going to share a long quote from this book, but it's so important to kind of reframe and reshape our understanding of what, what it means to obey this command. So I'm going to read this. Uh, please do your best to, I know sometimes when we share long quotes, it's easy to tune out. Please do your best to, uh, to reflect on this as I'm reading this. Read this with me. Not out loud, just in your mind. Focus is what I'm trying to say nicely. <laughs> what then is God's holiness? What do we mean when we say Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, Holy Trinity? We mean the perfectly pure devotion of each of these three persons to the other two. We mean the attributes in the Trinity that corresponds to the ancient words that describe marriage, forsaking all other and cleaving only only unto thee. Absolute, permanent, exclusive, pure, irreversible, fully expressed devotion. And so when we grasp that this is true in the Trinitarian fellowship of God's being, it will help us understand several things about holiness. First, watch this. It is not something mechanical, formal, legal, or even performance-based. Watch this. It is personal. It is personal. In a sense, holiness is a way of describing love. To say that God is love and God is holy, ultimately, is to, is to point to the same reality. It's beautiful. And watch this. Last, last paragraph here. If this is what holiness means in God, then in us it must also be a correspondingly deeply personal, intense, loving devotion to him, a belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, without any reserve, without, I love that part, without any reserve on our part. Simply put, it means being entirely his, so that all we do and all we possess are his, to be holy then, to be sanctified, therefore to be a saint is in simple terms, to be devoted to God, devoted to God. I think that for me, is tremendously helpful as we, as we want to obey God's commands and say, yes, Lord, you're holy. I want to be holy. And what does it look like to strive to be holy? It's the greatest commandment, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God. Love God with every fiber of your being, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. And love, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the church as yourself. Love, your, love, love the pagan world as yourself. And that's, and that's such a, a helpful corrective because often sometimes that, that I see with some people who are so big into personal holiness is there's a kind of an absence of love, an absence of love for God and joy in him and life in him. And 
an absence of love for other people, sinners, right, who, who they once were. They're saying, I'm holy, and it leads to like this self-righteous condemnation and anger and, and indignation, you know, versus like just being swept away by the radical love and devotion of God and responding with that same radical love and devotion and say, who do you want me to love? I've been forgiven. Who am I that I should receive your grace? I'll go show grace. I'll go love my neighbor. What, what do you want, Lord Jesus? My life is yours. You purchased me with your blood, right? You did for me what I could never do myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, but, but that's what it means. That's what holiness means. And so listen, listen, this is what I want to say. Okay, good. I'm not getting ahead of myself. Here's the deduction that flows. If holiness is about love for God, devotion for him, and that frames our external actions, right? It frames, it frames everything, actually, our devotion to God. Then listen, it is impossible to be holy. It is impossible to be holy without love for God and love for your fellow man. It's not this selfish pursuit of all this external obedience completely devoid of a heart that's on fire for God and a heart that truly and sincerely loves, loves your fellow man. It's impossible to be holy without love for God and love for others. And so the truth of the matter is this, is that radical love, you want to strive to, we want to strive to be holy. Well, here's the deal. Here's what we know to be true, is radical love for someone always leads to radical living unto that person. Radical love always leads to radical living on behalf of that person. For example, when Jen and I were dating, soon to be married, uh, like I was radically in love with my future wife. And so what that did is, is my life changed. My life looked different. I moved out of my bachelor pad with like four of my best friends to move home. Why? To save money for a ring, right? Uh, I, uh, I worked longer hours to save up more money with my, my part-time job I was doing. All of a sudden, uh, uh, self-discipline like was amped up. I'm like, all right, like here we go. I'm going to work out. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to save my money. You know, like it's game time. Like I love this woman. I'm going to marry her. And so boom, it, it, what my radical love for her looked like was thousands of miles put on my car as we dated long distance, going to Blacksburg and back four hours, uh, to Richmond and back on 95, uh, thousands of miles on my car, and then thousands of minutes on the phone. And I'm not a talker on the phone, but I was when I met my wife, my future wife, right? And none of that was a sacrifice. That was actually a joy, right? Why was that? All of that external change in my life. Everything, be holy in all your conduct. My radical love, and as I talk about this, it's kind of idolatrous the way I'm describing this. Anyways, it's for the sake of an illustration. But uh, all of my conduct was shaped around my, my devotion and love for my amazing wife-to-be, right? And so what we know and what Scripture clearly articulates is that we, the church, are the bride of Jesus Christ, that we are in a covenant relationship with him covenant relationship with him. And when you stand at the altar on your wedding day, when you say, I do to your spouse, you also say, you say, I do, you say, I choose you. And you also say, I don't. You tracking with me? When you say, I do, you say, I don't. When you say, I do to your spouse, you say, I don't to every other potential option on the planet earth. You're saying out of everything and everyone, I choose you. And you even say, I don't, to your family, to your in-laws, you're leaving and cleaving. And when you say, I do, you say, I don't as well. And that's what holiness and devotion to God means, is that Jesus, on the cross, you pledged your faithfulness, your faithfulness to the point of death to call me your own to, so that I could enter into this beautiful covenantal relationship with you. And so you've said yes to me. I'm going to give you my yes. And when I say I do, it also means I don't. And that frames, that frames 
uh, some of the addictions we might wrestle with or, or, or some of the, the, the idols we might wrestle with. Or that frames with us putting that to death, saying, I want nothing to get in the way of my pursuit and my, devo- my devotion and my faithfulness to you. It's an issue of love for Jesus. It's an issue of love for God, devotion for him, just loving his fellowship so much that we say, take it all. It's all yours. That's what it looks like. So radical love always leads to radical living. And so um, that's the application today before I transition here, is that the application is, listen, is anything, church, invite the Holy Spirit to come and convict you of any area where you're, you're holding back. You're holding back. There's, there's certain areas in your heart or certain areas in your life where you're saying, Jesus, you can have all of this, but not this, right? What is that? Would you bring that to Jesus today? And through the power of the Holy Spirit, repent and surrender that to him. And I love, and I'll say this one more time before I go to verse seven, the way... Sinclair Ferguson talks about our devotion to him, a belonging to him that is irreversible, unconditional, personal, intense, and loving without any reserve on our part. If there's any reserve in our heart, any reserve in our gut when we we are walking with Jesus, we need to ask what's keeping us back. That would be called an idol. That would be called an unsurrendered territory of our heart and our lives that Jesus is saying, hey, I've given my everything to you, and he's calling us to respond likewise. Be holy, for I am holy. And so moving on to verse 17. This one's kind of, there's some hard words here, but I'm the mailman. I got to preach the text, so take it up with God's word. Um, If you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. The next command that Peter gives the early church, he tells them to fear. He says the way you should conduct yourselves is with fear in your exile pilgrim journey. And what's wild here is we're commanded to fear. But what we know uh, throughout Scripture is that there's only one person we're ever commanded to have a reverent, healthy, accurate fear of. And that's the Lord, it's the Lord himself. And why? Peter says why. He says, yes, God is your father. And you want to desire to please him as obedient children? And your father who loves you, who's redeemed you, who saved you in Christ Jesus, your father is also the impartial judge of the universe who's going to judge each one's deeds. Peter is writing this to the church. He's writing this to Christians. And I think what he's getting at there is he's saying, listen, for the first 12 verses, right, we looked at uh, the, the identity, the indicative of the Christian life. I think Peter is saying, hey, your status as sons and daughters of the living God does not give you a get out of being held accountable for my conduct card. And what I mean by that is this, is, is you and I don't get a free pass from the present discipline of the Lord for disobedience. Hebrews 12 makes it crystal clear that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves, right? So we don't get a free pass from our Father's discipline who does that for our good in Hebrews 12. I took it out because I didn't have time to share it, but now I'm just sharing it anyways. He talks about, he talks about how the Father disciplines us for our holiness and for our good, right? So we don't get a free pass from the present discipline of the Lord. And in the context of this verse, we don't get a free pass from the future judgment that is to come where, where as Christians, we know, man, our, 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 uh, our names are in the book of life. We're covered by the blood. In the same way, we'll learn in 1 Peter 4 in, in a month or two, uh, we'll learn that we as Christians will give an account for how we stewarded the grace that God showed us, how we stewarded his salvation, how we stewarded his free gift. How did my kids steward the love, the grace, the mercy that I showed them every day? How did they steward that? Did, did my redemptive work flow through them or did it stop with them? We were... Preaching God's word here, we see that we will be held accountable. Our God is judge, and, um, and he's impartial. 
you might be saying uh, a rebuttal. Some of you might be kind of wrestling with this idea of, of fearing the Lord and say, oh, come on, Nick, this is preaching legalism and not the grace of Jesus. I don't buy this. And listen, I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that if you come to the Lord with repentance uh, and, and, and just contrition with your sin, that you won't receive the forgiveness and the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus in that moment of returning to him, right? It says that when, when one returns, heaven throws a party. They pop champagne, right? When a sinner who repents turns. But what I am saying is that being forgiven of our sins isn't synonymous with the consequences of our conduct being compl- completely nullified. Like, yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we're shown grace. But the consequences aren't always washed away. We don't necessarily get special treatment as God's kids. So uh, in my freshman year of college, uh, me and my buddy wanted to take a road trip to visit my friends at JMU down at Harrisonburg. I didn't have a car. I had to borrow my dad's car. So I said, hey, Pops, can I borrow your Jeep Wrangler? So me and a buddy, and I'm like barely 18 at this point, and can I drive, can I drive to, uh, uh, to Harrisonburg, spend the weekend there and come back? And he said, yes, son, you can. But here's the deal. I don't want you speeding. I want you obeying law. I don't want you to put anyone else at risk or yourself at risk. And two, I don't want, I don't want you to get a ticket because insurance rates are going to go up. So if you're, if you're telling me that you will obey the speed limit and be safe, you can take my car. I said, yes, sir. Got it, pops. So the whole way there, I'm conducting myself with fear in my, my, uh, my road trip, my exile journey, if you will, to Harrisonburg. You know, like look in the rearview mirror, go in the speed limit, all that stuff. We go. We have a great weekend, me and my buddy. And on the way back, things changed. The road trip back. He popped in uh, a Led Zeppelin mix. We were into the Led Zeppelin. You can't drive the speed limit listening to Zeppelin. I'm sorry. And there's an 18-wheeler in, the, in the right lane. I was like, I got to get by. It's been a long time since a rock and roll fifth gear. Boom. And then it wasn't too long until I got a reckless driving ticket uh, on 81. So exit 298, if you're ever going 81 northbound right before 66, slow down, friends. Slow down. I still slow down to this day. So I get pulled over, and my heart just sinks, and the music boo, just gets turned down. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody rocking out to the Zeppelin on the way home after that. And I go home, uh, you know, just chin on the floor, just, I mean, just devastated, because I know my dad was going to be so mad. And um, I go into his office. I still remember this. And I say, hey, Pops, I, I'm so sorry, but I got a ticket on the way home. What transpired next is not important to the point of my sermon. But... Uh, uh, <laughs> My dad's a police officer. He was a cop for 30 years. And here's what my dad didn't say when I came home, willfully disobeying his crystal clear orders. He didn't say, hey, you're my son, and I love you, which he does. I know my dad loves me, right? It's a great dad. Love my dad. He didn't say, because you're my son, I'm going to give you special treatment. Let me call. Let me use my status as a police officer to make some phone calls to make sure you don't have to face the consequences of your disobedience and your misconduct. Let me, let me work this out. Let me make sure that the rules of the road don't apply to you, that the consequences of misconduct don't apply to you. Why? Because you're my kid. My dad didn't say that. A month or two later, I forget how long it was, I was in a courtroom in Woodstock standing before a judge, terrified, you know, hoping he would show me grace. And he did, by God's grace. He, he lessened it. I didn't get a reckless driving ticket. Um, but here's the deal. Often, I think, I think we don't believe God's word. You know, and I think there's just an overextension of what we mean when we say that, you know, God is gracious, and yes, he is slow to patience. Yes, he is slow to anger, and he's patient, and he's kind, and he's graceful to us, right? Like all of us, that's the story of our lives is God's grace to us, right? And yet at the same time in Galatians 6, we see in God's word, and we see, it, we see in 1 Peter 1 today, uh, we see for Galatians 6, God will not be mocked. 
you will reap what you sow. Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And it's that that fear, that healthy fear, that accurate fear of the fact that God will God will discipline disobedience. If if we have unrepentance in our hearts, that discipline is coming. And what Peter is telling the church is, do not presume upon the kindness of God. Repent. Keep short accounts with God. Conduct conduct yourselves with fear in your time of exile. He's talking about fearing God the Father, who is also God the judge. And so may we... May we leave here with that reverence that our holy God, our Father, yes, is is loving and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yes, he's the holy, perfectly just judge who will judge us according to our deeds. And I'll I'll wrap up with this, concluding with these last couple verses. Um, Peter kind of shifts in the end of this section, and he kind of shares the biggest motivation for our obedience. And he talks about the biggest motivation for our obedience being our redemption in Christ Jesus, our redemption in Christ Jesus. This is beautiful. I love this. Verse 17 and 18. If you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile, knowing, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. I love how he starts verse 18. He's saying, knowing, church, Remember this, do not be too quick to forget your salvation. Do not be too quick to forget where you would be apart from the redemption of Jesus Christ in your life, your destruction. You're, you were on a highway to devastation and eternal separation. You were, you were a slave to sin and oppressed by the devil himself. He is saying, don't be too quick to forget where you came from and where you now are because of what Jesus has done for you. He's saying, don't forget. Get, keep that at the forefront of your mind. And it's not just that. He's talking, too, about a, a, a framing, motivating our obedience is looking to the cross and the cost, the cost that was paid for us to be sitting in this room today worshiping and praising Jesus. There is a precious price to be paid for all of you, each and every one of you, to be in this room today. Raising our hands, singing songs to Jesus, there is a precious price to be paid. And what that price is called, it's a ransom. And under the ransom is kind of under the umbrella of redemption, where Peter talking in the first century here, redemption was, uh, was this. It was liberation from slavery upon the payment of a ransom. That's what redemption is. It's liberation from slavery upon the payment of a ransom. So Peter here is using the language that, hey, we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved. We were in chains, in bondage, right? We were children of wrath, Ephesians 2. But then something happened. Right, something happened. Someone, someone paid the price to redeem us, redeem us, and purchase us as his own. Us, us, sinners. And, and then he talks about the, the cost, the price involved, and he says this: our ransom, the price that was paid to, to purchase us out of our slavery, was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What Peter is pointing out here says, the price of your rescue, your liberation from the curse of sin and the tyranny of the devil, it wasn't a cheap, trivial thing to God. Our sin was not something light, not something to laugh about, not something to, to take lightly. And It cost the Lord our God a lot. His son was crushed so that we could be called sons and daughters. And the only price, Scripture makes this crystal clear, there's only one way for slaves to be set free, 
slaves to sin. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. I mean, the only price that could ever be paid to rescue us from our slavery was the precious lifeblood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, innocent Lamb of God, as his blood poured out for your sins and mine. And so the reality that we live in, the reality that we live in is that it was his death that brings us life. It was his wounds that brought us healing. It was his forsakenness, his forsakenness that brought us adoption. It was his precious blood that was poured out so that we could have his forgiveness and righteousness coursing through our veins as our core identity. The chosen, the redeemed, the forgiven of God. And what Peter is saying, man, don't be too quick to forget your redemption, the futile ways of your former life and where you are now and where you will be forever because of what Jesus has done for you. He's freed us. He set us free. And, it, and there was a, the highest price that could ever be paid. Jesus Christ looking, I mean, wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling, sweating blood, saying, Lord, let this cup of your wrath that's going to be poured, let this cup pass from me. And yet Jesus looked to the cross, says the joy that was set before him, that he marched one step in front of the other, and he went one step in front front of the other, and he went to the cross to die so that we could be set free and live. And he did that because he loves you. And the reason he did that is why you are here today, not stuck in your sins, not under the curse of sin. Here today, not, not, not not with despair, but with the hope of future glory, right? That's why we're here. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. And then verse 20 through 21, I'll wrap up with this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, the eternal King of kings, Jesus, our Lord, Jesus, our Savior, foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was incarnated. He took on flesh the holy uh, God of absolute moral purity who is in his holiness, distinct and separate from sinful humanity, descended and dwelt among us in love for us. And the reason he incarnated, the reason he took on flesh, the reason he went to the cross and died was it says here we see in verse 20, for the sake of you. And it's through him, Jesus. We're believers, man, in God. It's all his work. And it was God who raised him from the dead to give us the hope of resurrection glory and gave him the glory so that, watch this, so that our faith today and our hope are not in anything in this life, but in the life to come. Not in any false king, in the true king of kings. Our hope is in God. Our faith is in God. Oh, church, we have it so good in Christ Jesus. So good. He's done so much for us. And so the response today as I wrap up is this church is not, you know, how can I now go be holy? No, no, no. It's looking to the cross. And I'll give us time to respond here. We just go to the Lord in prayer and open up our hearts to him. The response is this, is we look at our redemption and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we say, Jesus, in light of all you've done for me, how can I now hold anything back from you? And one of the songs we're going to sing, I'll call up the band now, uh, one, of the, one of the verses, the first verses, verses that is, my life is yours. 
my life is yours. And when we're saying that, we're saying, we're saying that there is no part of me that is not yours. You've given everything to me. You've given your life to me. Now I give my everything to you. And so church, let, let us one, let us respond today, worshiping and singing. The band's going to come up here and we're going to sing. But two, I think, think today's the day of repentance for some of us here. And I pray that the Holy Spirit, as we give you a moment to respond, that the Holy Spirit will just reveal to you as you go to him in prayer areas where you're kind of warring with your full devotion to God and that you bring those things that are distracting your sobriety of mind and taking your focus off of Jesus in the age to come, that you would, you would surrender those and give those to Jesus today. So uh, let's go silent here and let's go to our Lord to receive the fresh grace and mercy that he offers us. Father, we just come before you humbly, come before you grateful for just who you are and, and what you've done for us and your heart posture towards us, your devotion, your steadfast love and faithfulness to us is so remarkable and confusing at times in light of our, our lack of devotion and, and faithfulness to you, Jesus. And yet you pour out your grace and your love and your mercy upon us. While we were still sinners stuck in the slavery of our sin, Jesus, you went to the cross for us. You died for us so that we could be rescued. So forgive us when we don't want to follow you, Jesus. Forgive us when there's things vying for our affections that are not of you, that are, that are idols, Lord Jesus. Your word says we're, we're married. We're in a covenant. Your bride, the church. Forgive us when we've been going elsewhere to get what only you can give us, Lord Jesus. Forgive us, Lord. Would you open our eyes today, Holy Spirit, to the beauty and the wonder of Jesus? Would we taste and see today that you are good and you are better than anything else this world can tempt us with? Anything else this world has to offer, the American dream, a fancy retirement, comfort, security, reputation, none of that compares, even comes close to the love that you have for us, Jesus. So may we lay it all down today at your feet. Our life is yours. How could it not be? If it wasn't for you, we'd still be, we'd still be stuck in our sins under the curse sin and death and destruction how could we not the redeemed those who've been set free you did for us Jesus what we could never do ourselves we were dead in our sins and trespasses and you breathe life into us that's all your grace oh you're so good so thank you Jesus may your bride and your church come before you today with hands raised 
with repentant and, and, and contrite hearts, but also with worshipful hearts, devoted hearts where we just reflect on your beauty and your, your wonder and your holiness and your devotion to sinners. And we rest in the finished work of Jesus and sing your praises. So, uh, Holy Spirit, just come and have your way in any way in us that is not of you, Jesus. We bring that to your feet today. And we pray this in your magnificent, holy, and beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.